You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Colossians. Here's Nate. Well, nothing can transform a human life like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle, as he sat down in prison to write his letter to the Colossian church, understood this fact in a wonderful and strong way and sought to communicate it to the Corinthian church. Uh, If the book of Ephesians is Paul's letter to the church concerning the church as the body of Christ, telling us that we have apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers which equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that we are the actual body of Jesus Christ, uh, living out his will and his desires here on earth. The book of Colossians then is Paul's letter to the church explaining to us that Jesus Christ is our head. Ephesians, we're the body of Christ. Colossians, Christ is our head. And that we must be wonderfully connected to our head in order to be a fruit-bearing group of people, uh, but also fruit-bearing individuals in his kingdom. We must be connected to Jesus Christ. And so really the book of Colossians is a wonderful book where Jesus Christ is held high for us and we observe and study once again the preeminence, the glory, the beauty of Jesus. You could say it this way, Jesus Christ is enough. And that seems to be what Paul is communicating here in the letter to the Colossian church, uh, to the Colossians, and by extension, of course, to us. Now, the outline of this book is fairly simple. Chapter 1 and 2, Paul is going to explain what Christ has done for us. In chapter 3 and 4, Paul is going to explain what Christ continues to do through us. And so a wonderful epistle that we have an opportunity now to study. The letter begins, of course, with a greeting from Paul. Uh, These letters, uh, different from our letters in which we sign off with our name and address and all of that here, Paul includes it at the beginning as he does in his epistles, and he writes in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So we begin with the author, this man named Paul. Now, Paul, of course, in his conversion, had experienced a radical 180 degree turnaround. A former Pharisee who had been a persecutor of the church, Paul was now the most vocal supporter of the church. Uh, The church is in one sense greatest weapon uh, and uh, super uh, apostle in so many ways, just used mightily by the Lord. And of course, just looking at his life, gives anyone great hope concerning those in their lives who they would like to see give their lives to Christ and see a turnaround in their lives. If Paul the Apostle 
who had been Saul of Tarsus, could become Paul the Apostle, then the grace of God is not limited to save and to change and transform any human life. Now, in his letter here, he calls himself an apostle, Paul, an apostle. This is very normal with Paul. He excludes this title from a couple of his earliest epistles and his very personal letter to the Philippian church. And of course, he includes not just his title as an apostle, but he reminds them of his testimony. I've been made an apostle by the will of God. Now here he includes, in addition to himself, a man named Timothy, Paul and Timothy, he says. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that Paul was actually saying that Timothy was a co-author with him. No, the epistle is entirely Paul's. Uh, he'll actually conclude this epistle in his own hand. He is the author, uh, empowered and fueled by the Holy Spirit of God. But Timothy, they're with him at the moment. And Timothy, a fellow greeter of the Colossian church, Paul throws him in and says, listen, this is, you know, Timothy greets you uh, as well. And I love this because Timothy, of course, as you study his life, called into the ministry in Acts chapter 16 by Paul uh, as a very young man. Uh, he struggled with his youth. He struggled with physical sickness and infirmity. And apparently he struggled with fear. This is why Paul had to tell him in 2 Timothy chapter 1 not to be a fearful man. And so what you have in Timothy is this man who was a major player in the New Testament. Two New Testament epistles written directly to him from Paul. He had pastored the church in Ephesus, a wonderful man used mightily by the Lord, but obviously not for his physical strength or his mental strength or for his uh, wisdom that had come to him through age. I think what you have in Timothy is a man who was simply available to the Lord. And as you are available to the Lord, he longs to use your life, be available to him. Now, Paul says that this letter, verse 2, is to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This is Paul's way of saying this is to the church in Colossae. And this church was filled with faithful believers, faithful uh, saints who loved the Lord and were uh, diligent in their obedience towards him. Now, the city of Colossae was not a significant city at Paul's time. Uh, you might remember in the book of Revelation, uh, John uh, wrote letters on behalf of Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor. Colossae was not one of the recipients of those seven letters, but they were in and from that particular region. And so Paul writes to this church. Now, of note is that Paul had never actually visited this church. Uh, Epaphras had come to visit Paul in his Roman prison uh, from the church in Colossae, but Paul had never been there. We'll read in chapter 2, verse 1, that Paul will say, I want to, you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul did not start this church. Uh, he had not 
visited yet this church, uh, but he nonetheless loved this particular church. He says in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, on one hand, this thanksgiving from Paul is very normal uh, for his letters. He would say similar things to the Romans in 1 Corinthians and also to the Ephesians. But he tells them here in verse 4, he says, since we heard of. So there was this thanks that came from Paul to God whenever he prayed for the Colossian church because of a few specific things. Notice, first of all, in verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Number two, and of the love that you have for all the saints. And number three, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this isn't, of course, the only time that Paul will speak of faith and hope and love together. In one sense, this is the description of a strong believer in the mind of Paul the Apostle. He told the Corinthians, continue in these things, faith and hope and love. And he had heard of all three in operation in the Colossian church. First of all, he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. It tells us in Habakkuk that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. This little phrase is repeated three times in the New Testament, in Romans, in Galatians, and also in Hebrews, that the, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. You know, when God spoke that originally to Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet was struggling with his understanding of God. Uh, he had originally gone to God to complain of the unrighteousness that he saw in his home nation of Israel. God sought to allay Habakkuk's frustration by saying, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'll discipline the people for their ungodliness by sending the Chaldeans to discipline them. Now, the Chaldeans in Habakkuk's mind were far more ungodly than the people in Israel were at the time. And so he complained to God, how can you use such unrighteous people to discipline an unrighteous but more righteous than these Chaldean people, uh, people here in Israel? And God sought to speak to uh, Habakkuk and comfort him and say, don't worry, I'll judge the Chaldeans as well. But one of his encouragements to Habakkuk was, listen, the righteous shall live by his faith. Do you trust me, Habakkuk? Do you trust me with this decision that I am making? And I believe that in God's economy, faith is one of the strongest attributes that we can have. Just a real trust, a belief in God. Even when we can't see the evidence, even when we don't know exactly what it is that he's doing, to believe in him, to trust in him, to lean upon him. There is, of course, saving faith. It's wonderful to place our confidence in the blood of Jesus for the saving of our sin. 
But then there is this experiential faith, this living out of our hope and confidence in Christ, leaning upon God, trusting in God, believing that he is faithful towards us. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is this confidence, this assurance that fills the heart of a believer who has faith. Even when they can't see what is around the corner, they have this confidence and this belief in the Lord. It says there in Hebrews 11 verse 2, For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. And later in that chapter, we'll discover that Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. He is looking for people who would walk by faith. And I would encourage you, like this Colossian church, to exercise great faith in God, to believe in Him, to trust in Him. Don't think of things that He wants to do in your life as impossibilities. They are impossible, of course, with you, but they are possible with God. Trust Him. Be confident in Him have faith in God over your life. But Paul also had heard about their love that they had for all the saints. I remember when the Holy Spirit began to drop love for his people into my heart. It was a real shock to my system. I had really cared nothing for the people of God, nothing for the body of Christ, and even those beginning days in my relationship with him, although I appreciated the body of Christ, those beginning days were spent in self-focus. I wanted to gain victory over sin and have maturity and wisdom and God's blessing and God's favor upon my life. But in those beginning months, the Holy Spirit began to plop a love for his people into my heart. And it just radically changed my life. And I don't love as I should or as I ought or as I want to or as I will, Lord willing, as I grow in another decade or two. But that love is a gift from the Lord. And the Colossian church had this love for all the saints. Recently, I sat down to a meal with a few friends and and as we sat down, we were discussing a few missionaries that we know, older married couples who are serving the Lord in what they call the third act of their lives. And we were admiring them. And one of the couples in particular was just saying how much they just wanted to really serve the Lord in that kind of way in their latter years. Now, I've known these couples for many years myself. And I began to explain that these missionary couples had been loving the body of Christ and the world in that fashion for decades. And what they were doing in this third act was nothing new. It was merely what they'd been doing in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, and 50s, and 60s, and now 70s. They were honoring the Lord by loving his people. And I would encourage you, love the saints. 
you know, join in with the body of Christ, wherever you are, however you might be listening, throw yourself into the body of Christ. Oh, there's great pain there at times, but give yourself to God's people. Love on the saints. Now, Paul said in verse five that this faith and this love was because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Not only did they have faith and love, but they also had this wonderful hope before the Lord. This hope laid up for them in heaven. They had a confident hope and expectation of where God was taking them and what he had in store for them in all of eternity. A childlike confidence in the coming future in Christ for all his people. Their faith and their love had sprung from a deep confidence and anticipation of what God was going to do for them for all of eternity. And of course, Paul holds this out as a trademark of maturity in the life of a believer to say, I am so confident in what God is going to grant to me for all of eternity. Without this concept inside of your heart, life here is just so difficult. But have this hope inside of you. It gives a flavor to this life that is impossible without the hope of heaven. I can remember those last few months of my senior year in high school. <laughs> they were probably some of the, the uh, gladdest days of high school and really all of school. Just this sense that it was over. We were still in it, but the days were short and we were going to be graduates in just a few short months. Oh, we still had work to do. We still had classes to attend, but it put fun into those last few months to know that we were out of here. And to have that sense inside of the heart of a believer, it does good to the Christian soul to realize and to have a hope of and a confident expectation of what God is going to do for all of eternity in your life. Now, Paul had heard these things about the Colossian church, but this is what he had specifically heard. He says there in verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he tells them, he says, listen, I've heard about your reception of the gospel. And don't you love Paul's description of the gospel and what it had done in the Colossians in these few short verses? First of all, notice there in verse five, he refers to the gospel as the word of the truth. You know, in an era where it's so difficult to find any definitive truth, it seems as if we're able to debate about anything and everything. Seems that you can find an expert on all sides of every subject. But there is one thing that is so true. The thing that we can hang our hats on and stand firmly upon, it is the gospel. 
the truth of the gospel. Notice also that Paul said, it is among you bearing fruit and growing. And he said that it was doing this in the whole world. I mean, people all over the place were hearing of the Lord at that time. It was bearing fruit and it was growing. The thing about the gospel is that it is a fruit-bearing message. It has a way of changing and transforming a human life. For so many people, the way they preach the gospel is a pure positional message. Hey, you're in sin. You need to be forgiven and be placed into Christ so that you can have eternity with God in heaven. Once someone believes that message, they then say, now you need to clean up your act and live a different kind of life. The wonderful reality of the gospel, however, is that it is so radical and so deep and so wonderful that by simply studying what the gospel has done to us, that message actually gets down at the very core of who we are, and it produces fruit. Not just, well, the fruit of heaven now in my life, and now I've got to go do a bunch of works, but the fruit of a changed and transformed life. It was bearing fruit amongst the Colossian church. This is important, of course, to remember. Paul just said and exclaimed, listen, this is what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. It is bearing fruit in your midst. There will be some, of course, as Jesus explained, who receive the message initially, but don't bear fruit. Uh, they, The fruit is choked out by the cares of this world or by other messages that are embraced, or just a swift uh, rejection at the very beginning. Uh, but at the end of the age, the Lord will separate the wheat from the tares. And, and what he'll be looking for and what he'll find in, in genuine believers is fruit. The gospel is a life-changing message. Notice also that Paul refers to this message as the grace of God in truth. He says, you know, you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. How thankful we are that this is a message of true and real grace. Now, if Paul hadn't started this church in Colossae, who had? Well, he says in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Apparently, Epaphras was the man who went to Colossae to preach the gospel originally. We learn in chapter 4, verse 12, that he loved and prayed constantly for the Colossian church. Probably what had happened is when Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, he had decided to go into the school of Tyrannus and preach to the disciples, teach them every day. It says in Acts 19, verse 9 and 10, that in two years, because of that ministry of daily teaching, all of Asia had heard the word of God. Perhaps Epaphras had attended that school with Paul and had gone out to Asia Minor, gone out to Colossae, had preached in the church in Colossae, had been born. And Paul refers to this man as a faithful minister of Christ. Now, after hearing all of this from Epaphras, 
Paul says, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. In other words, Paul says, we heard this good report, and so we've been praying for you. And it's important to notice what Paul prayed for them about. Here's a healthy church, and Paul prays this way, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Really, Paul was simply praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for their lives. Now, it appears that what was creeping into the church in Colossae was some kind of false teaching, perhaps Gnosticism, which merely meant uh, to be in the know, to possess a superior knowledge regarding spiritual matter matters. There were people coming in saying, well, we know the deeper things. They were adding to the message of the gospel blending Christian truth, Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism. And they enjoyed using words like fullness and knowledge, telling people, we want to bring you into the fullness, and we want to bring you into knowledge. And Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. He borrows their words, fullness or filled and knowledge. And this is a preview of what is to come in this short epistle. Paul is going to write them a letter concerning the will of God for their lives. He's going to give them spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This tells us, of course, that uh, the will of the Lord is mostly found inside the pages of God's holy word. Secondly, Paul says, I'm praying for you, verse 11, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He says, listen, I'm praying that you'll have the strength to perform the will of God that you discover by the power of God, according to his glorious might, filled with the spirit, that you'll be strengthened for this work, and then you'll have endurance and patience as you go about this work of obeying the Lord. And he says there, with joy. Now, they would need endurance. They would need patience. They'd need that determination to obey the Lord. But to do it with joy, so rare, but, but noteworthy. Then he says, thirdly, I'm also praying for you that you'll be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. I want you to, my prayer for you is that you'll have the thankfulness towards the Father to propel you uh, to be strong, to perform the will of God in your life. If you're not thankful to the Father, you won't have the juice to be able to do these things inside of your life. And then he gives them some reasons to be thankful. He's qualified you, he said, to have inheritance of the saints and the light. He's, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness. 
He's also transferred us, he writes, to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, he says, in whom we have the redemption, the buying out of our slavery, described here, as Paul says, as the forgiveness of sins. Now, these are all just designed to whet our appetite for what is coming. Because in the pages and paragraphs to come, Paul is going to describe to us of what Christ has done for us in delivering us from the domain of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son, showing us that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is trying to show us reasons in this letter to be thankful, knowing that the substance is of Christ. Listen, who you need is Jesus. What you need is Jesus. Not a vain philosophy or some kind of legalism. You just need more of Christ. And as we gain more of Christ, we grow, we're changed, and we're transformed. Don't bore or tire of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.